We've been studying the book of James, and uh, last Sunday we saw James' first exhortation to his beloved suffering Jewish followers of Christ that consider trials as a pure joy because God is a perfecting our faith with a refining fire of a tribulation. Book of James is, is not about surviving hardship, but thriving through hardship. Yes, it is possible for us to thrive in trials if we have a true faith. Here, we can see James concerned with which is true. James lived in the time where there are many kinds of faith. Even his Jewish religion, there was a hot debate which Jews have a true faithfulness to Yahweh. So in this letter, we see expressions like a word of a truth, genuine religion, authentic spirituality, not that, but living faith. Why is James is so concerned with a true or a true faith? Just like a counterfeit money damages economy, fake news harms journalism and politics, counterfeit, counterfeit fake misled faith can cause great harm to kingdom of God and God's reign, and especially gospel in the world. The call and concern of a true faith is critical in every generation. Ask a German Christians and Italian Christians in 1930s and 40s. They followed the Christian nationalism under Hitler and Mussolini and almost destroyed their countries and the large part of the world. There's a radical uh, Christian writer named uh, uh, Brennan Manning. And... Uh, in, who influenced uh, many evangelical writers like uh, Philip Yancey, Max Lucado, even artists like uh, uh, Michael Smith and Michael Cart. He said this, The greatest single cause of uh, atheism in the world today is uh, Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. When Christians fail to live out what we confessed, that becomes a cause of atheism. And we are living in a very dangerous and confusing time as a Christians. American Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, are politically confused and theologically challenged. In my 40 years of life in America, this is the worst divided time. Good news is that today's message, today's passage in James, or today's James sermon actually, gives us a timely direction and biblical wisdom. With that, let's read James chapter 1, verse 19 to 27. My dear brothers and sisters, that's a James quote, a quote expression to summon his readers. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because the human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept a word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word 
but does not do what he says. It's like a, someone who looks at his face in a mirror and looking at him and goes away and immediately forget what it looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives a freedom continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. Their religion is a worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as a pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. While some commentators struggle with how to organize this text, I want to point out the key command in this, uh, in this passage is verse 21. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This command is actually connected to the earlier declaration of James in verse 18 where James said, He, that means God, chose to give us birth through the word of the truth that we might be kind of a first fruit of all he created. And also James is a connecting and continuing the meaning of a spiritual birth and growth through the word of the truth, which is now planted in us. You know, I love this expression, the word planted in you. Word planted in you. Here James is a describing word is as a seed. And our heart and life is like a soil. You know, when you become a Christian, there is an organic union between Scripture and our soul. My life is no longer alone. Word of God comes in like a seed and germinates this root. And then it grows. It lifts me up toward God. You know, when I received Christ into my heart at the age of 17, there was not much circumstantial change in my life, except all of a sudden, Bible became alive. Bible became alive. And uh, I have a little testimony. I've been a book reader since I was young. Not to brag. But when I was 16, I read 50 volumes of a set of a world literature within a year, some books even twice. Reading is my love. But whenever I came to the Bible, I couldn't read no more than three or four chapters, and I fell asleep. This is a sleeping pill. But all of a sudden, Bible became alive, and New Testament started speaking to me, comforting me, sometimes even making me cry. Amazing thing is after 42 years, this book is more fascinating to me than ever before. Hallelujah. Now, Jacob tells us the three critical applications and responses to the planted or implanted word in us to save us and sanctify us. I call this L3 communication of an incarnate word. L3 communication. Why L3? Did you know L3 Communication is one of the major employers in, in our, you know, North Texas? And one of our shepherds actually works there. You know, I asked, you know, his beloved wife, the, do you know what L3 stands for? And she said, logistic. And I even asked his son, you know, what does L3 stand for? 
is clueless. I say, love, you know. L3 stands for actually the initials of the three founders of the company. Now, our response is to the implanted word of God, also very foundational, and they all start with an L. So three L we're going to look at today. Listen, live, and love. Listen, live, and love. J James' first call toward God's word was to listen. He was uh, commanding us not to just listen, but listen quickly. Listen before we speak. Quick listening, he coupled with a slow speaking. Quick listening and slow speaking, according to James, will bless us in a critical area of life called anger. If you are a good listener, you can control anger. Look at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take a note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. James was giving us more than a practical wisdom or commonsensical self-help for anger management. Today he was exposing anger as a counter-righteousness of God. Counter-righteousness of God. Human anger is an anti-righteousness of God. That's what he's saying. And uh, we need to hear James teaching on anger very carefully today. He was talking about two kinds of angers, good anger and bad anger. Good anger is a righteous anger. Bad anger is not just unrighteous anger. You know what bad anger is? Self-righteous anger. Self-righteous anger. By the way, James didn't say all anger is uniformly evil. They are good anger. They are righteous anger. For instance, our Lord Jesus was angry when he saw hypocritical religious leaders of Jerusalem who converted the temple of Jerusalem into shopping mall for money changers and the price-gouging sacrificial animals to the poor. Apostle Paul was also angry when Apostle Peter failed to treat Gentile believers before the legalistic Jews as equal partners of a gospel of Christ. Anger itself is not evil, but there is a bad anger that does not glorify God or produce righteousness that God desires. What is the difference between a good anger and bad anger? According to James, good anger is a slow anger. And that's why Old Testament repeatedly says the Lord is gracious and compassionate, and what? Slow to anger and rich in love. God's anger is a slow anger. It's righteous anger. That means it takes a long time God to be angry. And when God gets angry, he has a good reason. God doesn't become angry emotionally. In contrast, bad anger is a fast anger and the fast emotional burst and the rich in condemnation. Another way to distinguish good anger and bad anger is a listening. That's the key application today. Bad anger listens to, listen to me, oneself more than God. Bad anger listens to oneself more than God. So, wisdom number one, don't confuse my word for God's word. Don't confuse my word for God's word. 
I think my wife agrees with me on that, that I'm an expert in anger. I didn't say I'm an anger management expert. I'm an anger expert. And let me explain uh, and illustrate how quickly my bad anger works. We have a wedding this uh, next Saturday. And my daughter found out that uh, one of her cousins is coming without his spouse. And she accused me of not telling her that information, of course. I deny my culpability. So I said, I told you that before and you forgot. So far, just a case of a miscommunication. No harm was done. It's easy to fix. Then my dearest wife said, you always do that. Now that awakens my anger. Quickly, I listened to my brain, which said, Paul, how many times did you tell your wife that always is not a good word? It's a word of generalization. Generalization is a violence to particularity of an individual. You miscommunicated maybe once you know, in a while. Not always. Then how can you be a pastor? Do you hear me, Paul? Your wife did not listen to you, generalize you, and uh, violate you. Her comment is a close to character assassination. Now go and defend yourself with a holy anger. You are excused to be angry as such an unlistening and unjust person. That's how my bad anger works, okay? And as you see, miscommunication just became self-communication. And self-communication triggers anger. Bad anger listens to oneself more than God. So what's the remedy or wisdom for anger management? James said, listen to God quickly or first before speaking to yourself. Look at the verse 21. James said, humbly accept a word planted in you which can save you, I might add, from your anger or bad anger. Humbly in Greek is actually meek, meek. That's why ESB and the other Bible, English Bible translate verse 21, with meekness receive the word planted in you. And the meekness in the Bible is a special word. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness in the Bible means controlled strength. It actually means tamed or domesticated. For instance, who is the meekest person in the Bible? Who is the most meek person in the Bible? According to number 12, 12 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Now, those of us who know the story of Moses, we recognize that Moses was not meek or gentle from the beginning. We remember he actually killed the Egyptian guy with, you know, with his own hand, right? Moses was not a meek person from the beginning. Then how did he become a meek? He became a gentle and meek after starting hearing God's word and obeying God's word. Likewise, when we listen to God's word, we can and we will tame our anger. When we learn to listen to the Spirit of God more than myself, we will overcome sad, self-righteous anger. Now, second response to the implanted word is about living out after listening. If the first wisdom is about listening more, second wisdom is about don't listen too much. You know, listening is just step for living out. 
So second, you know, uh, second response is to live out after listening. And verse 22, do not merely listen to the word, so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Do what it says. You know, this actually in Greek text, this verse 22 is a very simple and direct. It said, be doers of the word, not hearers only and deceiving yourself. And the word door is actually a key word repeated three times in this passage. So let me actually read this, you know, this passage in, in the more literal Greek text. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not doer, this one is like a man looking at a natural face in the mirror, for he has viewed himself, has gone away, and immediately has forgotten what manner he was. But one, having looked intently into the perfect law, that of freedom, having continued in it, not having been a forgetful hearer, but doer of the work, this one will be blessed in his work. Here, James is giving a special warning to hearers. That is, they can deceive them, themselves just by hearing, just by hearing. And again, the deceive is a key word, key warning in the first chapter of the book of James, which he repeated three times in verse 16, 22, and 26. Now, how can he listening to the word of God deceive us? How can we enjoy listening to the word of God can deceive us? If we forget, the purpose of listening to God's word is to change us, is to change us. The purpose of listening to God's word is for us to live according to God's truth. God spoke to us, not, to, not, not just to grow our intelligence, but to grow our obedience. The goal is obedience to Undertake God's word. Apply God's word to our life. That is a goal of listening. That's why you are sitting there. Goal is not just uh, intelligence to understand. And uh, to emphasize the call for obedience, James switches the word into the law in verse 25. That whoever looks intently into the perfect law gives the freedom. Because the law, you have to obey, right? If you don't obey, you're in trouble. So he changed the word into the law. Don't just listen to the word. Just like, you know, unobey the word, law, you have to, you, you, you are penalized for it. You have to pay for it. Just like that, just a listening word doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help you. You are deceiving yourself. Ultimate goal of listening and learning is a living. It's an application of God's truth that makes us wise and true and fruitful. But oftentimes, what happens? We confuse our conviction with God's change. In other words, we confuse our appreciation of God's word for our application. Let me explain what I mean by this statement. There's a great book written by a well-known, uh, he passed away, uh, Howard Hendricks, renowned professor of practical theology of Dallas Theological Seminary. 
And in his book, Living, uh, Living by Book, Howard Hendricks said this, Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to help you to conform to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you look like a savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of a biblical facts, but to transform your life. How about that? Bible, Bible study, all these Sunday sermons are not to make us a smarter sinners, but a sanctifying, sanctifying, you know, saint. In that book, he actually mentions several substitutions that we confuse for applications. And the two things that stands out for me is one is the emotional experience of work. You all know that. Sometimes we read a scripture and our heart was touched. And, you know, we are overwhelmed by, by God's goodness. And we say, wow, God spoke to me, right? I mean, that's not bad at all. But thing is, after God spoke to you, if you don't change, it just stay as an emotional experience. The another substitution is a, also, it is an insightful interpretation. You also, we also understand that you studied a certain passage and all of a sudden light bulb comes on. And then you said, now I understand. I got it, you know. Usually, this kind of, this kind of deception uh, happens to the congregation of gifted preachers. I met some of them who think they are smarter, holier than other Christians who haven't heard their pastor's sermons. But I have to tell you, it's not just appreciation of the word. It's the application of the word. That one makes us holy. Do you all know the, uh, you know, the Chuck Swindoll's ministry is called Insightful, what? Insightful living, not insightful listening. Guess what? Guess what happened to us when we just, you know, have an insightful listening, not for living? Peoples like that who love just insightful listen, they use those insights to critique others. Oh, Yes. And they kind of unknowingly, they grow this uh, spiritual pride that I'm better than you. I understand better. My better understanding makes me better Christian than you kind of things. You know, God gave us spiritual, uh, God, his word like a spiritual food. God nourishes us so that we can labor, we can work, we can serve with the strength and joy. That is the purpose of food. But spiritual nourishment does not lead us to action, it becomes a what? Wasted fat, reserved somewhere, actually slow us down. There is a passage in the Ezekiel that keeps me humble and alert. And let me read Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by walls at the doors of the houses saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. Not from you, from the Lord. My people come to you, as they usually do, sit there before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love. Their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love song with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your word, 
but do not put them into practice. You know, God was telling prophet Ezekiel, he was saying, don't be so proud of your popularity as a preacher. Don't brag that people come to listen to your sermons. If your audience's life is not changed, you are nothing but a performer than a preacher. Preacher's job is to heal people's life with a spiritual, as spiritual surgery with God's word. It is applications, not applause of your audience that matters to me. That's what God is saying to Eskiel. So, you enjoy listening to God's word? God bless you. Don't stop there. Now, the question is, how can he convert the listening to living? How can he bring a conviction to full change? I believe the critical link between listening to the word of God and living out to the word of God is a house church. You need to come to the small group where you can trust and you can share your convictions and make yourself accountable. At Forest, we have two main you know, ministries. One is a Good Shepherd College, which is our you know, adult you know, discipleship curriculum. And the other one is a house church. You cannot separate them. Learning and then living with accountability goes together. John Wesley, great Methodist uh, uh, pastor or founder, actually, he rightly said being a believer requires community and fellowship. Living faithfully as a follower of Christ requires accountability through community. Everyone needs a, f- a safe, sweet, and serious community that accepts us with our own failures, yet support us in our attempts to obey God. Do you guys remember last week, you know, the, the main, you know, command for, uh, of James toward us Christians under, in trial? That was a persevere, right? What's the Greek word for persevere? Do some of you remember? Upo mone, endure. Upo mone, upo mone. God calls us to endure together, not alone. You know, Joy gave a short testimony about how much she was encouraged by a friend came, you know, flew out to her. You know, we are encouraged together by each other. We endure trials and and everything together. Now, let me move to the final L. Final L is love. And Jesus and Paul, they all said the law of God means love. And the law is for us to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. But James concludes his sermon on responding to implanted word with one particular love. So let's find out what kind of love he's talking about. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. By the way, on this, we're going we're gonna to talk one full you know, uh, message, so I'm going to skip this part. Deceive themselves, their religion is worthless. The religion that God, our Father, accepts as a pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself being polluted 
by the world. The greatest act to please our God is obedience to love the poor and marginalized, those are helpless people in their distress. You know why? God loves everybody, just like a parents love their children. But just like a parents aches their heart for their troubled child or distressed child, God's heart is broken for those in distress. Those in distress, they're the dearest to God's heart. So poor like orphans and widows, people completely, you know, left, left behind of the ancient, you know, social, social warfare system of families and husbands and so forth. They, they are so dear to God. Their welfare means a world to God. And that's why Proverbs 19, 17, Solomon said this, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. He will reward them for what they have done. Anybody who will help out poor and marginalized people in their distress, you're making God indebted to you. That's, this is an amazing statement. You, know? you help out poor, God, feel indebted to, God, will, God will be indebted to you, and God will bless you. By the way, helping the poor is not work only for the rich Christians. It's for every Christian. Remember, James was writing this letter to persecuted Christians who had to leave their jobs and livelihood and have to struggle financially in their new displaced areas. So he was actually telling the financially challenged Christians to take care of her, take care of her orphans and widows in wherever they met. I recently read a, a news report on Texas Standard, which is a Baptist, a Baptist standard, about the Tijuana Mexican you know, Baptist churches, which opened their doors to migrants. Do I have a picture? You know, they fed them. They brought the, all the, you know, do you see the roll of bread and the, all, you know, different food items so that they can take. Some of them even converted to part of their church into temporary lodging. And they're really, they're really helping, helping this migrant who goal is actually to go, go through Mexico and to go to America, even though many of them sort of stranded in Mexico. I've been to Tijuana twice, and I know how poor these Mexican evangelicals are, you know, live. But they are poor, but they are rich in love, especially rich in love for the poor or poorer. Who are the poor in distress now? We all been, you know, uh, seeing the news about the desperate 12,000 migrants from, you know, Haiti and some from Venezuela in their real region last week. You know, I know uh, one Venezuela student that I met when I went to Venezuela a couple years ago, Marco. And his mother already came to America, you know, here in Dallas. And she came to our service a couple times, but anyway. But she couldn't understand English, so, you know, she, I encouraged her to join the Spanish, you know, congregation. But anyway, Marco tried to come here, but he couldn't come here directly, so he flew to Mexico, tried to sneak through the, you know, border, tried several times. Guess where he is? 
back in Venezuela. Yeah. This is a life of a desperate people. This my, you know, many people, media portrayed it as like a political issue. For us, this is a spiritual challenge. I really pray that God help us so that we can find the ways to lend our small hand to help out these distressed people. Because when God sees them, God doesn't see documented, undocumented, do you have a green card or not, legal, illegal, God, that's not how God sees. Don't look at them with the lens of whatever, you know, American, you know, legality. These are the same human beings. We could be easily in their places. I have a, a quarterly meeting for board of uh, executive directors for Texas Baptist two weeks from now. And I really plan to recontact the uh, uh, River Ministry, which are the uh, missionaries who are working in this area. And some of you remember five years ago, I visited uh, Matamoro to plan out our summer medical mission. And then, you know, Zika virus scared many of our young you know, medical professionals, so we kind of canceled it. When pandemic is under control, I want, to, I want, I want us to revisit to this uh, short-term medical mission to this border area. Seriously. Little bit we can do means so much to them. So much to them. Years. What people do for distressed people? What Christians do for distressed people? Becomes a great testimony of a faith and faithfulness in later. You know, I recently saw a documentary about Pope Pius XII. He was a controversial pope. I didn't know much about him. I had actually a negative view of him, like many people. He became a pope six months before World War II broke out. And uh, he was criticized because of his passive resistance to Nazis. And he actually declared the neutrality, political neutrality of the Vatican. So many people thought he was a sort of a compromise or sellout or a coward. But did you know, in secret, covert operation, he's been saving thousands of uh, Jewish people in Rome. And actually, within the Vatican, they call these people Pope's Jew. Pope's Jew. And this is what he said. Pope Pius XII said, for centuries, Jews have been unjustly treated and despised. It is time they were treated with the justice and humanity. God wills it. The church wills it. St. Paul tells us that Jews are brothers. They should be also welcomed as a friend. And then one day, he actually called, called the, his bishops and the cardinals that all Christians today should be Jews. This is the gospel. This is where, you know, gospel faithful people, they take a risk and they save other people. Now, one last, you know, word today is this. James said, helping poor and distressed is actually the best way to overcome worldliness and secularization of our souls. Look at the verse 27, the last verse. James said, the religion that God our Father accepts as a pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted 
by the world. Interesting thing James said was he didn't say, keep yourself pure from pollution of the world and look after the poor. That's not what he said. The order is clear. Take care of the poor first, and then you can be, you can keep yourself pure from the pollution of the world. Why? Nothing keeps us safe and sound spiritually from worldness than care and concern for the poor. When the poor and distressed are in our hearts and prayers, worldly pleasures and secular values will not attract our souls. You know, isn't it amazing? The last, you know, wisdom that James, you know, gave us is that we become strong and rich before God by being a poor and the weak and distressed. That is the wisdom of God. Loving others is the best way to live a life. And glorify God. Listen to God before you listen to yourself. Love after you're listening. And the love the least. That's how Christ loved you and me. Let's pray.